first lesson is taken from the book of Zechariah, the next but last book of the Old Testament, chapter 8, Zechariah chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days... Ten citizens from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel. The Lord be with you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Father, may you alone be our focus. May you alone be glorified. And may your words alone be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In our sermon series this summer on the post-exilic minor prophets, we've been preaching our way through selections from Haggai and now Zechariah. Last week, Tim spoke to us about renovating the heart for justice from chapter 7. This week, in our reading from chapter 8, Zechariah turns to the future blessing of the remnant returned from exile. And we need to focus for a second on the idea of blessing. From the time of Abraham, God's blessing to Israel was a blessing of fruitfulness, a fruitfulness tied to the land of Israel. They would inhabit the land, and the land would be fruitful, and they would receive the benefit thereof. And they themselves would be fruitful. They would have children, both for agrarian and military purposes. Here, Zechariah's prophetic words of future blessing follow in the same vein of fruitfulness. Verse 12, which we didn't read this morning, the chapters are long, it says, For there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. All these blessings will flow out to the people because God is at the center. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Verses 4 and 5 paint a picture of a people at peace and thriving. The old people and the children will be in the teeming in the streets. These manifest blessings will be incontrovertible evidence that God is once more at the center in Jerusalem. The final verse of our reading says this, this remarkable passage that so captivated me. In those days, ten people from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now it may be that many would come with mixed motives, but then haven't we all done that? Often we come to God for what can God, God can do for us or give to us, and not for God, God's self. That transition of motive if it ever happens at all, can take some time. Certainly it has in my own life. But we are not the Jewish people. God's covenantal relationship with Israel is something that we are grafted into. And the original covenant remains complex, mysterious, and enduring. As a matter of fact, The imagery that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11 of the Gentile believer being grafted into the covenant means that if the original tree dies, so does the grafted in branch. 
As ones grafted in or adopted into the covenant, and both images are used, the nature of the blessing changes for the Gentile follower of Jesus. It's no longer tied to the land of Israel. And the nature of the fruitfulness changes as well. Our gospel reading, the Beatitudes, is a declaration by Jesus of an entirely different kind of blessing. Now remember, Jesus is speaking at that moment into the traditional understanding of the nature of God's blessing. It had been a part of Jewish consciousness since the time of the patriarchs. The blessing of God on Israel had always been peace, prosperity, and fruitfulness. Always. And here Jesus speaks into this 2,000-year-old understanding of divine blessing with something quite different, doesn't he? First, who are those blessed by God? Well, it's the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the unjustly persecuted. In many respects, almost the opposite of the traditional Jewish understanding of God's blessing. And the nature of God's blessing on such people is very, very different. The blessings are largely spiritual, and their ultimate fulfillment may not be until eternity. I don't want to get too focused on the Beatitudes. Obviously, there's lots of sermon material there, other than to point out the change in the nature of God's blessing to the church. Our focus needs to remain on our passage in Zechariah. So God's future blessing flows out from God's manifest presence at the center of everything. With God at the center, there will be peace, prosperity, perhaps material, certainly spiritual, and fruitfulness. Our question this morning, I've always got a question, our question this morning is, what blessings do we need to experience to cause people to grab onto our sleeves, begging to come in because they are convinced that God is indeed with us? What would make the community of believers so enticing that people would clamor to get in? Well, what would we need to have that isn't readily available elsewhere? Certainly not material wealth. That's much more abundantly found elsewhere. Not just socialization. That too is found elsewhere with a lot more uh, sparkle and pizzazz. The same can be said for any number of other things. Entertainment. Although we have remarkably gifted music ministers here, uh, we don't have smoke machines. Entertainment can be found elsewhere with more oomph. A sense of belonging, the knowledge of an insider, and so on. I did some research on historical patterns of spiritual renewal and came up with some interesting common threads. The first might not seem self-evident, but it makes a great deal more sense once you reflect on it for a minute. That's repentance. Historically, a group of believers are confronted with how little difference there is between them and the world around them. How far they are removed from key elements of the life of Christian discipleship. They grieve, their hearts are broken by how unlike Jesus they actually are. And they repent. Now what about a penitent community would make them attractive? Wouldn't they seem like a bunch of self, sad sack, self-flagellant flagellants moaning about how terrible, how horrible they are. The answer to that is an emphatic no.
acknowledgement of and owning and repenting of our sins leads the believer to experience the joy of being forgiven. You can't get there without repentance. And being set free from that which had constrained us. A truly penitent community is a joyful community. But there's a secondary attractiveness to a community that takes sin and repentance seriously. And that is, having been confronted with their own sin, with our own sin, we're far less likely to be judgmental about the sin of others. There is a world of difference between saying, I long for you to experience the joy and the freedom that I've found, and you're nasty and you're going to burn. A big difference. A penitent community is both joyful and free of judgment. That's both attractive and unusual. Secondly, there's a yearning for God and God's power both individually and collectively. This is reflected in both a new devotion to prayer and an openness to the Spirit of God in a new way. An extraordinary example of this commitment to prayer can be found in the Moravian Brethren, the renewal among the Moravian Brethren in the 18th century. They had a 24-7 prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. Any volunteers? Yeah, not me. Um, interestingly enough, the Moravians were the ones who had an extraordinary influence on a divine spark on the Wesleys to whom could be traced the Great Awakening. But prayer was behind it. In such prayerful environments, people are more willing to exercise the spiritual gifts that they have been given. Godly leaders exercise their gifts of leadership and lead a willing community into greater holiness, which gives the Spirit even greater freedom and power in that community. It may be more obvious why this makes a community attractive, but a community that is committed to something greater than itself, holiness, and empowered to experience change in their lives and effect change in the world, the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit, is very much unlike the world around us. People, as a rule, are looking for a purpose as well as the power to, to change and effect change. Often, people feel lost and paralyzed. And our godly and humble transformation and empowerment is most attractive to any who are sufficiently aware of their own state. And finally, as the transformation achieves a critical mass, as a community becomes increasingly holy and empowered by the Spirit of God, people will turn to God, often in very large numbers. But make no mistake, this is not a strategy for evangelism. This is not a new missional model. This is the fulfillment of the prophet's promise that people will grab the sleeve of a believer saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Numerical growth is a symptom of a growing community, not the growth itself. Now I have a confession to make. I am, I am by nature not a revivalist. I'm not the one to look for the next grand, dramatic, or exciting thing happening in the church. While there are cycles of extraordinary spiritual fervency and growth, cycles that do change societies and the course of history, 
I've learned to look for the work of God in the hidden place and the humble and unassuming acts of obedience. Those who study revival movements are very much likely to overlook the ongoing presence and work of the Spirit of God in the church and the world. As a matter of fact, one article I read jumped from Acts chapter 2 to the 18th century with little more than a wave to the intervening uh, 1800, 1700 years. But God is always at work. And God's great and glorious work of the redemption and reconciliation of all of creation is always ongoing. But it does seem that there are times when the Spirit of God is released in extraordinary power in very public ways that changes everything. And there is a certain predictability to the constituent elements. Might this be such a time? The words of the prophet were true on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They've been true in every sweeping renewal of the church in the intervening years. And they are true for our generation as well. This pattern is something that has already begun among us. But let us keep our focus on repentance with its subsequent freedom and joy. And the increased jurisdiction of the Spirit in our lives and our community. God will give the increase, the fruitfulness, as we continue to become a humble, holy, and empowered people with God at the center. And they will say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.